All of scripture, the entire Bible, has one theme, and it's the gospel, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, you've been searching all along, and you're missing the entire purpose of the search. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. Can I get a witness? I'm going to ask that question a few times today. And uh, as I do that, I'm not saying we're going full Pentecostal, but I, I I want some responses here this morning. When I say, can I get a witness, can you just give me a loud amen? So, oh, you did it too early. (laughs) Can I get a witness? All right, here we go. That was delayed over here. You got to go a little sooner. A big city lawyer was called in on a case between a farmer and a large railroad company. And the farmer noticed that his prize cow was missing from his field through which the railroad passed every day. So the farmer filed suit against the railroad company for the full value of the cow. They're not cheap. And the case was to be tried, not in court, but just before the justice of the peace in the back room of the general store in the town. And so the attorney, the big city attorney, uh, basically was real slick. And so he cornered the farmer right before the trial and tried to get him to settle out of court. And, and he did his best kind of salesman job to make his case to the farmer. And finally, the farmer agreed that he would take half uh, of what he was claiming to settle the case for. And so after the farmer signed the release and took the check, the, the big city, you know, uh, slick attorney uh, couldn't help but gloat a little bit over his success. And so you know, he says to the farmer, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I put one over on you in there. Uh, there's no way that I could have won Uh, that case. Uh, The engineer of the train was asleep when the train rolled through your farm, and and, uh, the fireman was in the caboose when the train, and he he wasn't paying attention. I had literally no witnesses to put on the stand. And the old farmer (laughs) replied, well, I'll tell you, young feller, I myself was a little worried about winning that case when my cow came home this morning. (laughs) Can I get a witness? It's a little hard to prove something in a court of law when you don't have any witnesses. Judgment comes when a trespass is committed and there's enough evidence to convict someone. And usually that means there needs to be a witness. Can I get a witness? In Jesus' day, the Jews required two or three witnesses if a crime was to be reported. You couldn't just drag Tobias into court by saying he took my goat. No, you needed two or three witnesses to confirm, to validate, to corroborate it. But today in our text, we're gonna see Jesus presenting uh, the validation of who he is. He is the son of God, he is the son of man. And he's not looking for two witnesses, he's not looking for three. He doesn't even ask for four. He presents five witnesses that back up who Jesus is. Today we're gonna look at the third section of John chapter five. Uh, And as we've been mentioning, this section, this chapter, is a lot like a trilogy. So in a trilogy, either book or movie, you have kind of that opening book or that opening movie, and it gives you essentially the backstory with a little bit of conflict. The middle book gives you, or middle movie gives you a lot of the conflict, and then the third movie brings it all home and there's resolution. Today we're in that third book, that third part, the resolution. And so we saw verses 1 through 17 giving us 
the backstory. Jesus heals a man, lame from, uh, for about 38 years, and he heals him on the Sabbath. The fact that it was the Sabbath offends the Jews. And so last week we saw this conflict beginning where they said, you can't surely be honest as you're saying that you are God. Did, he, did I hear you right? And Jesus, remember last week, gives us seven reasons why he's equal with the Father. If you missed last week, you gotta go back and listen to it on our podcast. And so this week, uh, we see that Jesus is gonna go even more so and confirm his uh, witness by saying, I'm not just gonna speak for myself, I'm gonna have five others come and present their case for me. They're gonna be my witnesses for me. And so uh, we're gonna begin today seeing these witnesses, um, but before we do, I wanna see what is a true witness. So look at verse 30 with me. We're gonna read a few of these verses and then we'll talk about the five witnesses. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, uh, but the will of the Father who sent me. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So here, Jesus says he can do of himself nothing. Remember that last week, that he has the ability to do all things. He has full equality with the Father. He has all judgment, all life, all regenerative power, all knowledge, all love. And yet, in the midst of all that authority and power, Jesus is still completely submitted to the Father. We learn that's how we should be. We should be submitted to the Father. And do nothing out of independence. Because Jesus is our example. He did nothing out of independence. He didn't seek his own will, as he says here, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, notice in verse 30, Jesus' judgment, he says, is righteous. Okay? It's righteous. Jesus was sent by the Father, and thus his judgment about something is true. It's right. Uh, Matthew Henry says this on the screen. He says, where he gives commissions, he gives credentials. So where uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, where God guides, God will provide. So as God will give the commission, he'll also give you the credentials uh, to be um, worthy. And so Jesus says, I was sent by the Father. Thus, as an envoy sent by a true judge, we can rest in the unbiased judgment of Christ. There's no favorites in the family, all right? Maybe you grew up and your mom was like, you're my favorite, don't tell your sister. Uh, maybe she said that about your sister and you found out about it. Maybe you've been in a class and there's a teacher's pet. Right, school just got started and teachers are going back to school, families going back to school, it's a little bit of a crazy time. And sometimes we can look and say, well that teacher is being biased towards that student. That's the teacher's pet, that's the favorite. Jesus doesn't treat us like that. His judgment, he says, is righteous. It's not biased. And so Jesus is qualified to testify about himself because his judgment is true. Uh, it's reliable. Now my daughter, London, uh, she just went into sixth grade, and this summer she had some friends over from time to time, and that's what you do, you do sleepovers, and so we had some, some kids sleep over, and uh, one of London's passions is art, and so a lot of her friends, when they came over, one of the things they did is they would do, uh, they would do drawing competitions. So you get a piece of paper, and they're gonna draw a house, or a penguin, or a unicorn, of course, because they're 11, they're gonna draw unicorns, uh, that's what you do as kids when you get together. We don't do this as adults, right? We don't, hey, come on over, man. We're gonna have a drawing competition. We're gonna draw unicorns. <laughs> we don't do that. 
We don't do that. That'd be fun, though. That'd be great. And so they, they do this, and so they, they write it, they draw it, and then they present it to my wife and I. And they go, whose drawing is better, Daddy? Right? So I'm supposed to, <laughs> what do you do in that situation as a parent? How do you respond to that? You know, do you as a parent, right, so my daughter's good at art, so let me just show you. She draws a picture of a dog, and she brings, she goes, here's my picture, Dad. So she draws this dog. That's not her picture, all right? If it were, we would have a side hustle for sure, <laughs> making some money on the side, okay? Um, so she draws that, and she goes, here's my picture. And then one of her friends comes, and, you know, they draw another picture of a dog, and, um, and I don't know if we have a picture of that, Chris, but, you know, it's not bad. Um, but uh, it's, it looks like Stonehenge lost a bet. I don't know. It's just, it's like, all right, so what do you do? You can take that down. What do you do in that situation? Or what if your daughter draws the bad picture and the other kid's amazing? What do you do in those situations? Right, you just kind of go, um, and so what I do, uh, I'm a little bit, take the picture down, would you? Um, <laughs> so awkward. And so what I do in those situations, I, I kind of say, I kind of go, well, you know, your friend did a great job, and, you know, those ears are awesome. What a great tail. We're going to pick this one. Um, but, see, London picked up on this, so now she switches the picture. So she has, like, five friends over. You don't know whose picture's who, so it's a little more unbiased. You and I, we don't know what to do. We, we try to do a fair judgment, but often it's, it's biased. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I'm not here to seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. His judgment is fair. He's not acting independently and just sort of giving his own self-testimony. Uh, many people will do that. Like, hey, you can trust me. And many guys with their young girlfriends, you can trust me, it's okay. Trust me. And new business partners. Oh, you can trust me. You're like, yeah, let's shake on it. You can trust me. Well, how can I, I need it in writing. No, you can trust me. How many of you have heard that? Yo, you can trust me, it's fine. How do I know? Well, I'll give you my word. Well, can I trust your word? How can I trust your word? Well, I promise. And see, Jesus is reliable. Uh, you can give a self-testimony all you want. Uh, but I love what Stephen Cole says about this. He says, a man's testimony depends heavily on his character. If a man is known for lying and manipulating the facts to serve himself, you're not going to believe him even if he is really speaking the truth. But everything that we know about Jesus points to his integrity. He goes on and he says this. At his trial, the Jewish authorities couldn't find witnesses to agree about the charges they were leveling at him. After examining Jesus, Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. The men who were closest to Jesus, who spent three years watching him in all sorts of situations, all testified to his sinless character. So Jesus' point in verses 30 and 32 is that his self-testimony is true because he never acted independently of the Father. The Father bore witness to Jesus through Jesus' own testimony about himself. And so we can trust the accurate unbiased testimony of Jesus. And so just for a minute, before we look at the five witnesses, I want you to take these three things down. These are three things I want you to walk away with to understand what a true witness is. Number one, a true witness must be reliable. They must be reliable. Notice verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He's not saying that he is not being honest. He's saying, and because later in John chapter eight, chapter 10, he'll communicate a similar idea, but on the flip side, what he's saying here is that I can't just speak for my own. I've gotta have other people that also corroborate this. And so you must be reliable. You're not here to create content as a witness. You're just there uh, to recount the truth of the story. On the screen, if you guys wanna know the definition of uh, the word witness, it's actually 
the Greek word martyreo, it means to be a witness. It's where we get the word martyr from, martyr. And so when someone is a martyr, or a martyr, they're dying for their faith, and they are communicating what they've seen and heard. They're witnessing what they've seen and heard. Uh, this is an important concept to the Apostle John. He uses this noun, and in its verb form, uh, 47 times in the gospel and 30 more times in his epistles and in the book of Revelation. And so to be a witness is just very straightforward. You just testify what you've seen and what you've heard. It's more important to be accurate than exciting. You don't need to spice up the, the witness, the testimony. You don't need to say, hey, well, officer, there was this alien ship that landed. You don't need to spice it up. Just tell the, recount the facts, tell the truth. That's what it is to be a witness, reliable. Number two, a, a true witness does not themselves pronounce the judgment. If you get in an accident and you witness the accident, you don't run up and go, you're going to jail, buddy. You don't pronounce the judgment. The witness is not the judge. They just point out what was said and done. They leave it to judge and jury to pronounce the final verdict. I've been in a few courtrooms or I've seen some, um, some, some court cases on television. I've never seen a witness brought to the stand with their own gavel and they hit the stand and say, guilty. I've never seen that. You're just simply there to recount what was said and they leave the judgment in someone else's hands. Not only that, but number three, a true witness speaks not for themselves, but for others. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Anyone can lie and tell the police a made-up story about themselves, but in order for a witness to be true, they need someone else um, to corroborate or they need to be the ones speaking. In other words, you can't be your own alibi. Uh, the Mishnah says this on the screen, a man is not worthy of belief when he's speaking about himself. Demosthenes, the Greek order, made this a principle of justice when he said, the laws do not allow a man to give evidence on his own behalf. What about in scripture? Is this verified in scripture? Well, yes, the Bible clearly communicates that if a charge is brought against someone, you need two or three witnesses. On the screen, look at this. Deuteronomy 19 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Someone says, well, that's Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? It says in Matthew 18, when someone sins against them, we're to go with several witnesses. Remember, Paul told Timothy, we don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought with two or three witnesses. So though Jesus' witness about himself is true and it should stand up, the Jews wouldn't receive it because it needed more than just self-testimony. Remember where we're at in the text. Jesus just said, I'm God. He's speaking about himself, and the religious leaders don't believe him. So he's gonna bring to the stand, not two, not three, not four, but five witnesses to pronounce uh, this testimony, and then the Father will bring the final verdict. So today we're gonna look at these five witnesses. Can I get a witness? Look at verse 33. Here's number, the first witness, number one. John the Baptist. Verse 33 says, you have sent to John the baptizer, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He, John, was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Remember, John the Baptist was a fantastic witness of Christ. John chapter one, verses six through eight, uh, this is the other John, John the Apostle, speaking about John the Baptist. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. It's that word martyr. That all might believe through him. 
he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Remember, John came and he's, he's testifying, he's speaking, and the Jews were really interested in what he had to say. Uh, and, and he's preaching on the kingdom of heaven, being at hand and to repent. And, and the message was, was palatable to the Jews for a season. They were receiving that message. And then John shifted gears and he began to say, there he is, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that was a message they couldn't stomach. That was too much for them. And so here, uh, Jesus calls John the burning and shining lamp. It's a lamp that produces both heat and light. And, and they, the Jews, like moths, were drawn to the light, but they got too close and they couldn't handle the heat and they were seared by it. And so they were repulsed eventually by the heat. And so they, the Jews, appreciated the forerunner, but not the king. They appreciated the messenger. They didn't want the message itself. They wanted to see the guy that would lead them to Christ, but they didn't want to see Christ himself. And Jesus is saying here that if we need to produce a man's testimony, let's select a man who was sent by God himself. And that man was John the Baptist, who said, I must become less and less, and he must become greater and greater. And Jesus said, you listen to him for a moment, but once he testified about me, you ignored his message. And so the first witness here, John, was a testimony of man, and Jesus said, that I don't need man's testimony. But then he says, I'm gonna call to the stand a greater witness than John, a greater witness. Can I get a witness? Amen, you guys are losing steam a little bit, but you're, you're, you're still with me. All right, what could be greater than John's witness? Look at verse 36. He says, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Did you guys catch that? The second witness on the stand is the miracles of Jesus, the works of Jesus. Now, up until this point, Jesus has done some pretty amazing miracles that bear witness of him just from John's writing. If you're keeping count, he's turned the water into wine at the, at the wedding um, in Cana of Galilee. If you remember, he's healed the government official's son in Capernaum without even being there. And he's healed a man who was lame for 38 years, restored him to full health. But there's more miracles to come. As we study this book, we're gonna see, coming up soon, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we're gonna see Jesus walking on water. And we're gonna see, in chapter nine, uh, a healing of a man who is born blind. And we're even greater than that, gonna see a man who was dead for four days, raised back to life, Lazarus. And so after John the Baptist was thrown into prison, there was a moment where um, he had kind of a lapse of faith. And so he's looking at the, the, um, the ministry of Jesus, and he's got this moment where he's like, wait, wait, I'm the forerunner, and I'm, I'm in jail, I'm in prison, and I'm awaiting execution. So he has this moment of, of kind of a hiccup in his faith, a lapse of faith. And so um, he's discouraged, and he sends his, two of his disciples to go talk to Jesus. And their question is, are, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one to come, or should we be looking for someone else? It doesn't make sense that I'm in prison. I thought following you was gonna kind of lead me to triumph and not to suffering. And some of us, sadly, have maybe bought into that type of a false doctrine. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I've come to Christ, all my problems are gonna be erased. Uh, he just wants prosperity for me and not adversity. Maybe you've bought in, prescribed to that false notion. Well, well, John did. He was thinking, well, what's going on? I'm discouraged, I'm despondent. So he sends two of his disciples 
to ask Jesus, are you really the Christ? Are you the one? He has this moment. And here's what Jesus, I love what Jesus responds to him. Look, look what Jesus said to him in Matthew 11. Jesus answered to these two disciples, go and tell John the Baptist what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. I love that. These are all works that would accompany the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, hey, the works should speak for themselves. In effect, Jesus is is saying this exact same thing in two other places in the Gospel of John. I'll put them on the screen. You can jot these verses down. John 10, 37 and 38. Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, notice this, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, that's bad that we, we've learned this a few weeks ago. We don't just place our faith because God's working. Uh, but Jesus said, hey, at least believe that I'm doing stuff. In John 14, 11, he's, he went even further. He says, believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, the miracles of Jesus speak for themselves. Is there anyone here today that you know has the ability to take a glass of water and transform it into wine? In our community, you'd probably be popular if you had that ability. Does anyone here know someone that can walk on water? Right? It might be popular on I don't know, the swim team, if you have that ability. Is there anyone here that can raise the dead? That would solve a lot of issues uh, with people that have medical issues. I can, just, I can raise the dead. No one has that ability today. See, these works testify that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. So if you're keeping count, we have the eyewitness account of John the Baptist. We have the works of Jesus. And in case they weren't noticing or listening, there's always a third witness, the Father himself. Can I get a witness? Look at verse 37 and 38. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Wow, this is a scathing rebuke. Now we kind of skipped over it, but up in verse 32, Jesus alludes to the Father. If you have the New King James, they, they actually give you a, a capital um, he uh, in verse um, 32. Uh, there's another who bears witness of me, and it says, uh, I know that the witness of which he, it's capitalized. He's speaking of the Father, most people believe. Uh, it's a reference to another who's bearing witness about him, another. Okay, there's, um, there's two words Jesus could have used for the word another in the Greek. There's two different words. He could have used uh, the word alos or heteros. So let me show you the two. Alos means another of the same kind. It's where we get the word alloy from. So there's another of the same kind. Uh, there's another uh, helper. Jesus says in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit. He's another helper, right? So he's of the same kind. He's very similar. But there's a different word um, that he could have used. He could have used the word heteros. Um, and that means another of a different kind. Remember in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7? No, you don't remember that because it's one of those verses that is scathing and it's a rebuke and we don't put that on the verse of the day and we don't put that on our wall and no one has a tattoo of Galatians 1, 6 and 7 right here on their forearm. But Galatians 1, 6 and 7, Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm astonished that you're turning from the gospel to another gospel, which is no gospel at all. 
He, he says another gospel, and it means a different kind. In other words, it isn't even a gospel, but you're departing from the gospel to some other gospel. And so, um, sadly, that's what many people today are doing. They're following suit. They're doing what I call, they're committing the sin of Galatia. They're, they're separating themselves from the true gospel to some other quirky, different gospel. And so, he says that's a different kind. Well, Jesus in this verse, uh, when he talks about the Father, uh, right here in verse 36, or 37 rather, uh, he says uh, he is another, another in verse 32 rather. It's the Father. He's the same kind, another of the same kind. And when he says that he's bearing witness, the Father's bearing witness, what he's saying is it's continual. You could say that the Father's the one bearing witness through all of these witnesses. He's the one behind the works. He's the one behind John the Baptist because he sent him. Uh, he's the one who's constantly testifying to the claims of Christ. Now, I just mentioned it. Here Jesus has a scathing rebuke of the Jews. Maybe you missed it, but there's three things that Jesus indicts the Jews with. Look at it again with me in verse 37, the second half. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, you do not have his word abiding in you. Just jot those three down real quick. We're not gonna have them on the screen, but the first one is that they didn't hear his voice. He's saying that to the religious leaders who had the scriptures in front of them. He said, you've never heard his voice. What? I thought God spoke through Moses. I thought God spoke through the law and the prophets, through the burning bush, through the pillar of fire by night and, and the cloud by day, through the scripture. Well, he may have been speaking clearly, but they weren't listening because they weren't true followers of Moses. If they were, they would have recognized God's voice in Jesus. Secondly, he says, you've, you've never seen God. You've never seen his form. They would look back to Jacob, Israel being their father, uh, who had seen the face of God when he wrestled with the angel, which I believe is a, is a pre-incarnate uh, picture of Jesus. But the Jews were not true sons of Jacob or they would have seen God's form in Jesus. They would have seen him. Thirdly, he says, you do not have God's word abiding in you. Though they studied the word and even many of the rabbis had memorized much of the scripture, they were studying it incorrectly. Why? Because they had not come to understand the word made flesh. And that makes the scriptures the fourth witness. Can I get a witness? Amen. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. We believe as Christians in a Trinitarian Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And so it's important that we, uh, we search the scriptures, but the scriptures in themselves are not God. They testify about God. We have to understand that. We have to understand the difference there. The Jews were searching the scriptures, studying their Bibles, but they missed the entire point. And that gets me a little bit passionate because I fear that we fall into the same rut, the same sin, the same mistake. It's like going to the optometrist and you've got the eye chart in front of you and you recognize every single letter down to the minutia and you miss the E. The most important thing that the scriptures testify about, you completely miss. And many people today are doing the same thing. I've heard some people who say, well, uh, yeah, we don't read the Old Testament. Uh, that's the that's, uh, Old Covenant, that's Old Testament. We don't read that. I just live in the New Testament. 
I kind of, I kind of, I've heard this. I marinate in the New Testament. I'm like, marinate? Really? You marinate? Are you a chicken leg? What's going on here? Jesus just said the scriptures testify of him. To which scriptures do you think Jesus is referring to as he's speaking to these religious leaders? We don't have the New Testament yet. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, he says, testifies of him. So to reject the Old Testament is like the man at the insane asylum who is digging out the foundation of the building and someone comes along and says, why are you digging out the foundation of your building? And you go, don't you live here? And he goes, well, yeah, I live on the second floor though. It's fine, right? That's a mistake. You can't reject the Old Testament. Marinating, come on. Augustine said it this way, I love this. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Uh, my favorite class at Bible College, we just uh, sent off C.J. Haynes, one of our interns, to Calvary Chapel Bible College. By the way, he's doing well, a little update. He got accepted into a discipleship program called Patmos out there, which is great. So praise God for that. He's doing well, start school soon. I'm sure you'll see him on social media. Uh, he's out there, and I'm going to encourage him to take my favorite class. My favorite class at Bible College was uh, Christ in the Old Testament. Powerful, it's phenomenal. I remember in uh, Psalm chapter 40, it says, it's written of me in the volume of the book. The writer of Hebrews picked up on that in Hebrews chapter 10. All the scriptures testify of Jesus. You guys remember on the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, there's two of Jesus' disciples a little confused. There's the, the death and the resurrection. They're just overwhelmed by it all. And Jesus veils uh, his glory. They don't see that it's even him. He kind of disguises himself and he goes, hey, what's going on, guys? And they're like, haven't you heard the news? Do you not have cable? What's going on? You've got to know what's happening in Jerusalem. And they start recounting to him. And I love what Jesus says in Luke 24. Uh, on the screen it says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and end? But I'd go back to in all of church history, it'd be this exact spot it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Would that not be an amazing inductive Bible study? I would have loved to have been there. But I found something interesting about um, the, the word all. It says, in all the scriptures. Did you know in the Greek, the word all, it means all. It doesn't mean some, it doesn't mean most, it doesn't mean hardly, it means all. All of scripture, the entire Bible, has one theme, and it's the gospel, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, you've been searching all along, and you're missing the entire purpose of this search. I fear that some of us in our lives may be searching, and we've got this sense of purpose, and we're leaning our ladders against the wrong wall, so to speak. Imagine you live your whole life climbing a ladder, and the whole time you were leaning against the wrong wall. Many of us, we have the wrong purpose. We're searching for something and we miss it. John Corson says this. The Greek word translated search in verse 39 is erinao, which means to track the scent. I love this. Like a lion or a bloodhound. That's the way to study scripture. Follow the scent of the blood. Sniff out the scarlet thread of the cross. Look for Jesus. Wow. How easy is it for lawyers studying law, becoming involved in the intricacies of it, without ever grasping justice. How tricky may it be for doctors devoted to people. And in the same way, it's easy for serious students of scripture 
to fall in love with the precepts about the person and not the person himself. We can become obsessed with exegesis instead of Jesus. Uh, The church father Jerome said this, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. I'm reading a book by uh, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is powerful. It's called Revival. And uh, in that book, he says this, a very heavy quote. He says, there's a terrible danger of our putting the doctrines, the true doctrines about the person into the place of the person. In other words, we, we become obsessed with Christology and make that our priority rather than Christ. It's, a, it's something that we can, concepts about the Holy, we love studying doctrine and we miss what those doctrines point to. We love concepts about the Holy Spirit, all the while we neglect our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have all sorts of theological positions about the love of God, and yet we are not experiencing or sharing the love of God. Listen, church, we must know the word of the Lord, and to truly know the word of the Lord, we know the, the Lord of the word. John Stott said it this way, a man who loves his wife will love her letters and her photographs because they speak to him of her. So if we love the Lord Jesus, we shall love the Bible because it speaks to us of him. Jesus here says, Scripture is a witness of me. And yet these religious leaders who had the Scriptures down pat, better than we have it, they didn't even recognize the Lord who was of the Word right in front of them. So if you're keeping count, we have John the Baptist. We have the works of Jesus. We have the Father. We have the Scriptures themselves as witnesses. And so here now we have the verdict. What is the verdict in verse 41? Look at it with me. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you... You do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Wow. These men were motivated not by their love for God, but by seeking the approval or the validation of others. They wanted other people to give them honor. So they would gladly receive someone who came in his own name as long as he gave them honor. And Jesus isn't doing that, and so they reject him. And so his verdict is, hey, I know you guys, and you don't have God's love in you. On the charge of being a lover of honor from other men, Jesus says you're guilty as charged. Now, those four witnesses are fully sufficient to validate Jesus. He gave them one more than was needed. He gave them four, not just two or three. He's already laid it out there. But now Jesus calls to the stand the most powerful witness uh, for the Jews. This was a witness that would be like in a a game of poker, pulling an ace out of your sleeve, so to speak. This would be um, kind of the, um, the one person that the Jews would think was a star witness on their behalf, Moses. Look at verse 45. Witness number five, can I get a witness? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. In other words, I don't even need to bring accusations. He says, there's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, Moses himself is your accuser. Uh, The word accuse here, if you want to circle that, highlight that, it's a legal technical term that means to bring charges into court. It means what it says. To bring charges, like these are actual legal charges brought. They love this, man. They thought they were putting Jesus on trial. But uh, he says, let me call a witness, and it's your witness, and now you're the ones on trial. You're the ones uh, who are guilty. 
Jesus says, I don't need to accuse you. Moses himself is accusing you. Now, we need to know who Moses is. Moses is the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he would have been their star witness. They would have absolutely brought up Moses to uh, accuse Jesus. And if they had anyone that they could hang their hat on, it would have been Moses. But rather than testifying for them, it's actually Moses who is a witness against them. And Jesus makes a bold claim in verse 46. He says, Moses wrote about me. He wrote about me. Now, to the new observer, you might go, when did Moses write the name Jesus? I don't see the name Jesus in the Old Testament. When was this? Uh, This is fascinating, but um, I want you to jot this verse down. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. This is incredibly important, church. Deuteronomy 18, these are the words of Moses. Look at this prophetic statement. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you, this is future tense, a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you. So he will be born of the Jews, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is saying, I am preferring now someone that is gonna have a greater voice than me. I have a great voice, he's got a greater voice. He's gonna be like me, he's gonna be from us. Listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. So he's one who comes from the Father, who speaks for God, and he shall speak to him, to them all that I command him. So we'll hear the voice of God and relay that message. It doesn't get more clear than that. Moses is speaking about Jesus. Uh, now, in Acts chapter 3, Peter alludes to that exact quote. This is why this is important. Peter Um, at Pentecost, speaks to the crowd and and says, "Um, yeah, that prophet that Moses was referring to, yeah, that's Jesus. Later in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be martyred, he also affirms this prophecy of Moses and says, yeah, remember that prophecy? Yeah, that's Jesus. So we have in the New Testament two distinct leaders in the church that say that prophecy is about Jesus. And so Jesus here, what that does is stops them dead in their argument. If you notice, look at where the chapter ends. It's like with a question. And then you have chapter six, unless you turn the page, there's chapter six, and it just goes on to the next story. Jesus asks them a question, and the idea, the, the idea is that there's no response. Why? Because the answer to Jesus' question is obvious. And Jesus says, if you don't believe these things from Moses, how will you believe my words? And the answer is simple, they won't, they won't. And what we'll see in a few weeks as we start a new series uh, I am, called I Am, we're going to see Jesus making these statements, I Am. And what we'll find is that it continually angers the Jews to the point that uh, we actually come to a place where they succeed in putting Jesus to death. But if you're here on Good Friday, you know that Jesus had no one take his life, but he laid down his life. But getting ahead of ourselves, Jesus says, If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Can I get a witness? Amen. Well, we've just heard from five witnesses. And so at this point, the defense rests. And as we consider these eyewitness testimonies about Jesus, here's what I want to do. I want to put us as a congregation in the center of the story. As we look at this, Jesus was on trial, and he had five witnesses that he brought. And you this morning are a part of the jury. So as a member of the jury, you must deliberate. You must weigh the evidence. But it's not about Jesus being true or not here in the story. It's about Jesus' validity of who he says he was. He says, I am. 
And this morning, you and I must weigh that out this morning and know that the answer, the verdict that we reach about Christ is a serious verdict. It's a matter of life or death, your life or death, spiritually speaking. Will you this morning receive the testimony of John the Baptist who said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Will you receive that testimony this morning? This morning, the works of Jesus, the miracles speak for themselves. Even today, even in this group of people, he has brought people from death to life, myself included. Will you receive that testimony about Jesus? This morning, will you open your Bible and from Genesis to Revelation, a look of Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection on your behalf, will you receive that testimony? Would you listen to Moses who testifies that Jesus is really the one that you should listen to? Uh, Would you trust the father's testimony about his son who says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. This morning, I wanna invite the band to come forward and I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles with me. And I wanna kind of uh, bring this home. I'm gonna bring the band up and we're gonna close in song in just a minute. But uh, I want to apply this a little bit. Here, see, here's my fear, church. My fear is that some will hear this sermon or read this text and go, oh, yeah, drop the mic, Jesus. Boom. Jesus just told off his enemies. Yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to go out and find people I disagree with and drop the mic on them. Some of us, we have a picture of Jesus in our mind, and this is the picture that we think of. Jesus is sitting there with a rifle, and he's ready to take out everyone who disagrees with him. That's where some of us are at. And we've got these closed-handed issues and open-handed issues, and we start fighting with people even in the church and think that the church is our enemy. I would say, easy, Tigger. I agree you should focus on winning, but not winning the argument. See, it's possible to win an argument and lose a soul. You can win the debate, but in the middle of the debate, you could lose your brother. In your desire to be right, you may actually push people away, people who were created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And I don't see Jesus doing that in our text. (laughs) I don't see Jesus kind of dropping the holy hand grenade and diving with his disciples out of the way and just seeing the carnage that's going to take place. If you don't understand that reference, that's good. I don't know if you missed verse 34. Why does Jesus point his enemies to these witnesses about himself? I'll put it on the screen for you because you closed your Bibles. Uh, He says, but I say these things that you may be saved. That who may be saved? The disciples? No. The people on the fence about Jesus? No. He says, so that the Jews, the enemies of Jesus may be saved. Wait, what? Jesus' ultimate motivation was to see lost people found. His motivation was to see those in darkness brought into light, to see those who were condemned be saved. And my fear is that we don't have the same motivation. We argue and we debate and we like to be right, but not for the benefit of our brothers who disagree with us. It's to their demise. And my prayer is that we would we'd have a more evangelistic focus, that we would imitate the compassion that Jesus has here in speaking to his enemies. Barclay says this, I love this. His voice might be stern, but in the sternness there was still the accent of yearning love. His eyes might flash fire, but the flame was the flame of love. Does that describe how we interact with people whom we disagree with? 
May we be more like Jesus, stern, full of fire, yes. But that fire, like John the Baptist, is warm and it's light-giving, the motive of love. I have really two pastor's challenges for us this morning. Can you guys handle two? I have two challenges for you this week. Double your money's worth today. In your interactions this week, first I wanna challenge you, number one, to seek to win, seek to win. Not the argument, but the soul. Don't just seek to pull and send, and one of those is win. It says in Proverbs 11.30 that he who wins souls is wise. And we know that we don't have the ability to win people to faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates those who believe. He brings them from death to life. But we get to be a part of that process. We get to be a part of the gospel proclamation. And what a privilege that we can see a harvest of souls as we plant those seeds and as we water those seeds and as we reap a harvest of souls for Christ in eternity. See, the scriptures, John the Baptist, the miracles of Jesus, the Father, they're all, even Moses, continuing to testify today that Jesus is true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so may we have that same testimony. And so my second challenge for us is this. Seek not just to win, but seek Jesus. Seek Him in the scriptures. This week, as you open your Bible, and I pray that you do, as you open your Bible this week, my prayer is that there would be a hunger for the Word of God, a hunger. Guys, we live in a time where there's a famine of the Word of God, and yet we have more access to bread than any other generation that exists. I was in the bookstore the other day, and they actually have the Homeschool Moms Bible. I mean, we're getting specific now. We've got every Bible that you could ask for. The Men's Devotional Bible, the, the Working Blue Collar Men's Devotional I mean, we've got it all. We've got access to more bread than ever. And someone said, if we dusted all the neglected Bibles in Christianity today, there'd be enough dust to blot out the sun for a day. I don't know if that's true. But we live in a time of biblical famine. Oh, that we would have a desperate hunger for the Word of God and search the Scriptures. As we read the Bible, search for Christ. That's my prayer for us this week. As you open the Bible, in all of the volume of the book, from Genesis to Revelation, look for Jesus. Search the scriptures for Jesus. I've shared this story before, but it's so powerful. I wanna close it today and then we'll sing together. Just bow your heads and I'm gonna ask you if you need prayer for just a moment. I wanna share this story with you. I've read it before, but it's a true story. A man in Kansas City was severely injured in an explosion and his face was badly disfigured. And in the explosion, he lost his eyesight as well as both of his hands. Being a new Christian, one of his greatest disappointments that this man could no longer read the Bible. Well, he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. And so hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. And as he got them, much to his dismay, he discovered the nerve endings in his lips had also been destroyed by the explosion. And so desperate, one day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them with his tongue. And like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. And at the time that story was recorded, the man had, quote, read through the Bible four times. Oh, that we, church, as our heads are bowed, that we would have the same desperate desire to read the Bible, to meditate on the Lord Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.